we're all about repair, we're all about rejuvenation, so taking people who've already accumulated a certain amount of damage, perhaps not quite yet so much damage that they are exhibiting symptoms, but even if they are, yes, absolutely the same would apply. Uh, but nevertheless, yes, quite a lot of damage, therefore we can go in and repair some proportion, perhaps most of that damage, and leave people in a state similar to how they would have been young adulthood. I'm with Aubrey de Grey. This is Dr. Nick Delgado with Simply Healthy TV. When I first found Aubrey, he was in front of an audience at a TED Talk, and it got him a tremendous amount of publicity. Why? Because he was talking about aging, possibly immortality, and the things we can do to intervene. What is your research at this time, Aubrey, and what are you working on to figure out the steps, the protocols? What does your research show at this stage that we can maybe take a proactive attempt to reverse or stall the aging process? Well, uh, at Sense Research Foundation, which is the charity that's being created around the ideas I've been talking about for the past 15 years, uh, we are a biomedical research organization, so we have no actual clinical work going on. We have a few thousand square feet of lab space in Mountain View, California, where we do a couple of research projects trying to develop ways to repair a couple of the types of damage that accumulate during aging. And we have the same kind of activities, if you like, extramurally at universities around the USA and also one in the UK, uh, where we fund professional and their research groups to look at repairing other aspects. That's our main focus. We're interested in repair. We're not so much focused on slowing aging down. We want to take people who are already in middle age or older and actually rejuvenate them, putting their bodies and brains back into a state at the molecular level and the cellular level that resembles how they were as early adults. And therefore, by that means, of course, also restoring mental and physical function to a young adult state. So at this stage, with uh, the latest talk about stem cells, st uh, gene therapy, rejuvenative uh, interventions, what are you high on hopes, and where do you think the actual science is starting to translate into real-life examples that you can take from the laboratory and possibly apply uh, out there in the doctors that are ready to start you know, helping their patients to rejuvenate? There are examples. Certainly, you mentioned stem cells. This is an area, stem cell therapy, which has now made the leap through from the laboratory into the clinic. Many areas in which stem cells can be medically relevant have reached the point of clinical trials, including, actually, areas that relate to the biology of aging. So Parkinson's disease is a great example, a very important disease of old age, of course, and it's definitely something that should, in principle, be treatable using stem cell therapy after a long period of fits and starts and full starts, um, th the people who are working in that area are now very optimistic. There are clinical trials now in progress looking at this, and I personally am extremely hopeful. I think there's at least a 50-50 chance that we will be able to truly cure Parkinson's disease within the next decade using stem cells. 
Other areas that need to be worked on that are just as important are unfortunately by and large at a considerably earlier stage of development, so they're further away from real clinical fruition, um, and that's why Sense Research Foundation exists. We don't actually do any stem cell therapies, stem cell research to speak of, simply because it's a very big area, lots of other people are already working on it, and we, with our very small budget, we're only a $5 million a year organization, um, we feel that it's important to work on the most neglected areas areas and so give the best bang for the buck, so to speak. Aubrey DeGray, in your look uh, at, you mentioned Parkinson's, is it possible that in addition to the stem cell intervention that we can use some other uh, treatments that uh, Rebecca Gleaser talked about in using, say, testosterone pellets in, in uh, Parkinson patients? Uh, I've also reviewed the literature where there was suspect about in the brain, uh, this, the brain stem, there was some damage and possibly could we heal that and through dietary measures, uh, steps that we're looking at with hormonal intervention, with supplemental intervention, maybe even uh, uh, telomere intervention. So what can we do with a Parkinson's uh, patient uh, based on the research? At the moment, my impression, and I must say this, I must emphasize this is my impression because this is really not the area that we work in, and so it's not something I'm completely up to date on. My impression is that, yes, there are some modest improvements in some patients that can be achieved using these relatively straightforward, relatively simple measures, supplementation, hormonal supplementation, and so on. However, it's not going to be the real McCoy. It's ultimately, the reason why you have the symptoms of Parkinson's disease is because there is not enough dopamine in the body and that is because mm. there is not enough, are not enough cells making dopamine and that is because those cells are dying in this one part of the brain called the substantia nigra and they're not being replaced automatically by the division and differentiation of any kind of precursor or stem cell so the purpose of this is to fix that problem at its heart to put stem cells into the body, into the brain, into that particular part of the brain, which will divide and differentiate to create new, what are called dopaminergic neurons, that will create the dopamine that the body is no longer creating the way it used to. When I visited India, they were doing uh, research with injecting stem cells directly into the brain. They were also working with uh, uh, vision loss, blindness, and seeing some interesting uh, improvements in, in eyesight. Uh, are we talking about actually injecting the, the stem cells directly into the brain area? In some cases, that is certainly the thing that would, would, it, we would expect to do. And of course, Parkinson's disease is a relatively easy disease in this way because the cell loss that's happening during the disease is confined to one very small area, this thing called the substantia nigra. In something like Alzheimer's, late stage Alzheimer's, where there's a good deal of cell loss, that loss of cells is happening rather more broadly in the brain. So it's going to be necessary to arrange for the precursor cells to migrate, um, you know, rather as if they, as, as they would in the rest of the body in the circulation, to migrate to the places where they're needed. That's a rather harder problem. Dr. Mark Gordon um, looks at brain injury and he's uh, talked about some of the evidence of uh, using what uh, C.J. Pike at USC who's published over 178 papers uh, utilizing, say, hormones, testosterone, growth hormone, but making sure they cross the blood-brain barrier. And he felt that uh, there was some promise in helping uh, patients with uh, Parkinson's uh, and other related brain injury. Uh, is it something to do possibly with their research that, that uh, hormones do stimulate uh, stem cell production and then indirectly, elegantly help to improve the condition? In some cases, yes. As I mentioned earlier, certainly when there are stem cells present, but they are un, un, 
undesirably quiescent, if you like. They're mm. sitting there and not really doing what their job is. Then that may be improvable using such simple methods. But the real difficulty is in cases where there simply are no stem cells at all. Um, you mentioned blindness earlier. Macular degeneration, of course, the number one cause of blindness in the elderly. This is another area where there's great promise for stem cell research. And indeed, clinical trials are already going on to replace the what are called the retinal pigmented epithelial cells at the back of the, back of the eye that, uh, that atrophy and die and cause the blindness loss in, that, that, that happens in macular degeneration. We are getting close to being able to fix that problem in the same way. There may be some preventative measures in macular degeneration, possibly uh, looking at uh, when a doctor examines the <coughs> eye in the back and they see these shiny <coughs> crystals of cholesterol and atherosclerosis. So uh, aging can involve uh, dietary intervention, lifestyle intervention, uh, preventive measures, but once it develops, you're talking about some very uh, important therapies that might uh, help the brain to restore and re rejuvenate. That's right, yes, absolutely. We're all about repair, we're all about rejuvenation, so taking people who've already accumulated a certain amount of damage, perhaps not quite yet so much damage that they are exhibiting symptoms, but even if they are, yes, absolutely the same would apply. Uh, but nevertheless, yes, quite a lot of damage, therefore we can go in and repair some proportion, perhaps most of that damage, and leave people in a state similar to how they would have been in young adulthood. Do epidemiological studies indicate that certain populations of the world are more susceptible uh, due to their indigenous diet and or lifestyle to uh, brain degeneration, whether it be Alzheimer's or uh, glaucoma uh, or some of these related conditions, even Parkinson's? Is there any kind of evidence that, uh, around the world uh, and in history of the world? There are certainly differences between different cultures, between different races. So there's genetic component to this, there's certainly lifestyle component, there's um, dietary component. However, I think it's always important to remember that these differences seem to translate into some things being faster in some um, cultures, some things being faster in others. The overall readout, if you like, the, you know, when, you, when you add it all together, there's not all that much difference. If you think about, for example, the difference in life expectancy today between the USA, which is way down the list in the industrialized world, as opposed to Japan, which is at the top of the list, the actual number of years of difference is only four years. So we're actually not really talking about something that we should consider to be the holy grail of postponing aging. If we want to postpone aging by a, risk, by a really um, dramatic amount, we need something that no cultures, no lifestyles, no dietary approaches are going to achieve. So in one of your books, you wrote about uh, some of these interventions. Uh, since you wrote uh, that book, in which title it was your, your, your best, but uh, have you added footnotes and beliefs about things that have developed since uh, you put this information out? Yeah, this book, Ending Aging, uh, came out in 2007, so eight years ago now. It sounds like a long time. We actually did a kind of... Um, Oh, well, we did a paperback edition, actually, um, uh, the following year, 2008, and so much had happened in just 12 months that we persuaded the publishers to let us add an entire full-length chapter, a kind of afterword, that covered all of these advances, things like the development of induced pluripotent stem cells, which happened that year. Um, but... 
Of course, uh, it would be nice if we could do that every year. We would, li- we would like to. It's a lot of work, unfortunately, and we haven't really had, to, had the resources to allocate to that. The good news, though, is that the book is still relatively up to date, not because of lack of progress, not at all, there's been masses of progress, but rather because the progress has, by and large, been in the direction that we had predicted. The paradigm that we put forward, the types of damage that need to be addressed, the ways in which we think they can most plausibly be addressed, all of those things are basically the same, and we're just plodding away, making it actually a reality. I guess I'm surprised uh, with the book out uh, since 2008 and uh, ending aging that there aren't more um, world influence uh, leaders, billionaires, and so forth coming to you with... uh, uh, direct me to what di- doctors and scientists are doing these protocols. Is it that uh, they're hesitant and skeptical because others have said it's still in the research phase? Or when your life is on the line, what do you have to lose? What, what does it take to uh, bring it to the point where a person will go, okay, um, you know, it's life or death now because that's what aging is, isn't it? It's a well, disease almost, isn't it? So the difficulty is, of course, that yes, on the one hand, there is skepticism for any, about anything that is at an early stage of development and and especially something like aging, where civilization has been trying and failing to do something about it since, what's well, the dawn of civilization. Uh, you know, that's a big part of the problem. Another part of the problem, I have to tell you, is that people who are thinking mainly about themselves, they don't tend to actually let this impinge on their consciousness until it's too late. Yeah. until they're within a few, maybe only a few years of death. And at that point, they look at this early stage work and they know correctly that it's not going to be in time for them. So they, that, that, again, disincentivizes them. What we, try to find, what we find is that the people who are really able to get enthusiastic and start to support this work are people who are relatively young, maybe middle-aged, maybe even younger, um, and yet also who are visionary, you know, who understand the value of radically improved technology of all sorts, including medical technology. So maybe the people at uh, Google, uh, at uh, Microsoft, at Apple, I understand they're starting to enter into the uh, anti-aging arena. Uh, Is it possible that these young individuals have the vision that it's going to take five or ten years and start as early as possible? I mean, you're you're aging past 25. I mean, the whole aging begins fairly early, right? The earlier the intervention, is there a better outcome? Well, for the interventions that we're talking... At least in animal models, because we don't have any examples of human models, do we? For the for therapies that we're working on, we have to always take into account the fact that this is rejuvenation, which means that the, you can start too late, yes. If people are literally at death's door, then it's very difficult to do anything particularly dramatic to them. But you don't really want to be t- thinking about treating kids or treating young adults because they simply haven't accumulated very much damage yet at all. So there's not much to do. It would be the equivalent of taking your car in for its annual service every month instead of every year. You know, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. And, uh, and yes, I mean, certainly people at companies like the ones you mentioned are getting interested. Google have created this new offshoot called Calico, which is putting a lot of money into this. Some of this is going to take more than five or ten years, and they know it. They know that this is, they have to be in this for the long haul, and that's how they are funding it. So I'm reasonably optimistic that Calico will make an important contribution. They may be taking an overly traditionalist approach so far. We'll see whether that's really true. Um, I'm not, I don't think they're going to make Sense Research Foundation obsolete anytime soon, put it like that. Audrey DeGray, give me five of the most promising interventions that can help to repair and uh, reverse the aging process, if you will. 
Well, there are, of course, stem cell therapies that we've already spoken about for diseases like Parkinson's disease and macular degeneration. Then there Do you are, have a preference between umbilical cord, fat-derived, peripheral, mm. umbilical being of a mm. one-day-old at birth versus a person who maybe collected their own stem cells, they're already 40 or 50 years old, or if they were smart enough, they collected them at birth as well? Uh, give me your preference. At this point, I don't think any of those things are really the preferred way to go because, in general, mm. as you say, in, if, if, if it's your own cells, they're not available because you didn't collect them 50 years ago, right. and if they're not your own cells, then you have, of course, the immune rejection issue. So for me, the goal here over the next few years is to improve the quality of dedifferentiation, the creation of induced pluripotent stem cells, and the redifferentiation of those cells into the particular organ-specific progenitor cells that are needed for a particular therapy. I think that's going to be the most routine and the most reliable approach. Is it possible to do HLA match for if you are using umbilical cord stem cells and then at least know that the tissue match is consistent with the, the, the donor to the patient and so forth? HLA matching is certainly a big step towards reducing the immune rejection issue, but of course, as you know, it doesn't eliminate it completely. There are plenty of aspects of the adaptive immune system which do not actually, which still differ between people that have the same HLA pattern. Um, you wanted to know about some other therapies, though, yes. not just stem cell therapies. That's number one, stem yeah. cells. What's so, number two? So one, re one that we're really excited about is the identification of bacterial enzymes that can be incorporated, mm. or the genes for them incorporated, into human cells so as to allow the human cells to break things down that they can't normally break down. When I talked about uh, macular degeneration a moment ago, I talked about using stem cells to replace cells that have been lost, but a much more... A uh, much superior approach in principle would be to augment the ability of those retinal pigmented epithelial cells to break down the garbage that is killing them. And that would, of course, stop the garbage from killing them in the first place. The garbage in question, the molecular waste products of the visual cycle, have been identified some, some years ago. And what we're working on is identifying bacteria and the enzymes and genes that they have that can break these things down and then incorporating one or two genes into those cells so that they can carry on processing the photoreceptor material that is allowing us to see. That's going really well. Um, we've got another project which is along the same kind of lines, uh, but in this case for atherosclerosis. And that one is actually a bit further along. We've already demonstrated in cell culture that we can protect cells from the major toxin that drives atherosclerosis, oxidized cholesterol, and a particular, a particular variety of oxidized cholesterol called 7-ketocholesterol. We can give cells a, a quantity of that stuff which would normally be lethal to the cells, and the cells are fine with it because they've got this ability to break the stuff down that they have from this bacterial gene. Then another thing we're doing is to do with amyloid. So this is the fourth. This is the fourth. Um, so amyloid is, as most people know, a feature of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, senile plaques, the um, molecular garbage that accumulates in the spaces between our brain cells in Alzheimer's, is made of this stuff called amyloid. There are other types of amyloid made of different proteins that accumulate during age in other tissues, and they turn out to be very important in the pathogenesis of certain diseases. Um, uh, uh, diabetes is one of those diseases. Another really important one is something called senile cardiac amyloidosis, which is the fact that it's got a really long name indicates that it hasn't been around for very long. We haven't known about it for very long, but it's now known to be a very major killer of extremely old people. If you get to the age of 105, 110, it's your number one risk factor for death, is this, this one particular disease. And it can be measured 
paid for. And we have now got ways to eliminate that amyloid. We have been funding a group at the University of Texas in Houston that has developed a special type of antibody, they call it a catabody, which does not simply bind to its antigen, it actually chops the antigen up. So it removes this stuff. And thereby, we hope it will resolve this amyloidosis and allow people's hearts to carry on beating, even um, when they otherwise might not. So you and I, in 40-plus years, we, ne- <coughs> we need to be aware of and probably avail ourselves of some of these very therapies. I mean, it's, uh, it's important to take the research, but at some point, some of us have to step forward and go, okay, does it work or not? And, of course, the main way that that's going to happen is the front line will be people who are accumulating the relevant particular type of damage more rapidly than they are accumulating other types progeria? of Progeria? Is that an well, example of I rapid aging? I wouldn't want to talk about progeria here because in progeria you've got a single mutation that is causing a very rapid acceleration compared to normal people of the of various of the aspects of aging. What I'm talking about is within the normal range of aging. There's still a variation from one person to the next of how rapidly certain types of damage accumulate relative to each other. So that's why some people die of cancer and some other people die of heart disease and so on and so forth. It's going to be more straight, most straightforward, I believe, to test these therapies for both safety and efficacy by identifying a patient population which is aging normally but whose particular type of aging, you know, the bits that you want to focus on, the bits that you want to test your therapy for, um, are going a bit faster than the other bits. Was there a fifth? Sure, absolutely. Um, cancer, as I just mentioned. Um, so we're interested in, in controlling cancer, of course, one of the major age-related killers. And um, the way we're doing it is by controlling telomere elongation. We're interested in stopping cells from being able to extend the ends of their chromosomes when they, when they divide. And a lot of people have been working on this already for some time in relation to the enzyme telomerase, which is the natural way that cells extend their telomeres, and it's also used by something like 85% of human cancers. But one thing that we need to take into account is that the other 15% of human cancers extend their telomeres in a different way. And that alternative mechanism is still completely not understood. People have tried quite hard to figure out how it works, what the genetic basis for it is, and they haven't succeeded. So we're trying to figure that out because we know that as success improves with regard to anti-telomerase therapy for cancers and people get better at stopping cells from using telomerase to extend their telomeres, um, so those cancer cells will just go to plan B and they will figure out how to use this alternative method. So it's not just even a 15% of the cancer's problem, it's 100% and we need to really get on with that. Let's focus for a moment on cancer because it's a a growing uh, problem uh, around the world. Uh, Certainly, I I think due to the decline in lifestyle choices, people are eating poorly, they're eating more sugar, more fat, more processed foods, they're exposed to more chemicals any time in history, Uh, they're using less uh, nutrient-dense, rich foods that are protective. What can we do uh, if we take a, a full court approach approach to uh, helping a patient who is either at risk or who has developed cancer uh, above and beyond what currently uh, traditional medicine is doing. What can we do? Yeah, of course, there are a number of risk factors that considerably accelerate one's likelihood of getting cancer at a given age. We all know about smoking, of course, but it's not just smoking. It's the things that you mentioned, too. Cancer therapies that exist at the moment, really, you know, it's, it's been a bit of a disappointment how slowly the war on cancer has progressed since Nixon gave his famous speech more than 40 years ago. 
Um, but actually, there are some causes for optimism. So the approach that we're taking of controlling telomeres is an extremely elaborate approach, one that is going to involve gene therapies as well as stem cell therapies to protect certain rapidly renewing tissues like the blood from the side effects of that, that therapy. So we'd really be very happy if we didn't need to do that and if something else were to come along that was much simpler and also just as effective as our therapy is going to be. The best bet for, the mo- for that at the moment is, I think, very clearly cancer immunotherapy, stimulating and optimizing the immune system to be able to attack cancers. The immune system naturally attacks cancers before we even know about them. Any cancer that gets to, a, to be big enough for a doctor to notice it has already jumped through a million immune hoops, so to speak. It's figured out how to elude the immune system. Uh, But there are new tricks that people have been developing that allow the immune system to try again, to try more more, um, aggressively, so to speak. And clinical trials are already in progress in some cases for this this kind of approach, and they are reporting very, very promising results. So there is a considerable cause for optimism right now. Let's backtrack to uh, gene therapy. Give me a a further description of, uh, in the ideal world, how would we uh, create a gene therapy program for an individual? So the difficulty that gene therapy has historically had is that it has off-target effects. In other words, you engineer your virus with your therapeutic gene or whatever, and you inject the virus into the body at certain concentrations. A friendly virus. A a virus that is not going to do any harm because any unfriendly components that it used to have have been removed. Okay. And you've put in your engineered DNA instead. And you, yeah, you put this virus in and you uh, use the bits of the virus that know how to invade cells to get into cells and to integrate the DNA into the genomes of those cells so as to alter the genetic um, co- composition and thereby the properties of the cell. Fine so far. The problem is that most viruses don't care where they integrate. They don't have any particular preference for inserting themselves into the chromosome at a particular point rather than another particular point. And that means that there is a small but non-zero risk that when a virus does this, it mutates the DNA, the human DNA that was there already, and and turns the cell into a cancer rather than fixing the cell. That's the big danger. And the way that they, historically, that gene therapy has tried to avoid this is simply by not using very much virus in the first place. And that, of course, restricts the scope of gene therapy to applications where it's going to be enough to repair just a very small proportion of the cells in the body. Certain liver diseases are like this, where there's been some good success. What we want to do is allow much higher concentrations of virus to be introduced so that we can modify a much higher proportion of the cells in the body. And in order to do that, we need to make sure that the virus is much more fastidious, much more specific about where in the genome it goes, that it only goes to a particular safe, reliable spot. There is a new technology called CRISPR, which is a really smart way to modify only a very particularly chosen part of the genome for, in, in a variety of different ways. And it started out being fairly specific, fairly fastidious for a particular chosen um, DNA sequence to hit. And, thing, and improvements have been made over the past few years, step by step, so that now it's really incredibly good. That's great. But what CRISPR does not do is insert large amounts of DNA. 
It modifies the DNA that's there in a short sequence, and that's really all it does. So in order to get significant amounts, a few genes, for example, to give cells the ability to break down oxidized cholesterol or whatever, um, we have to do something else as well. And that's what we've been developing. We've been using a really sophisticated but very poorly known technology coming from the, from bacterial viruses, actually, um, that can be used to insert arbitrary amounts, even hundreds of kilobases of DNA, into a, a very specific point in the human or mouse genome, depending on whether you're doing therapy or research. Um, and we're using CRISPR to modify the human or mouse genome before that, in order to allow the bacterial virus to actually work, because the sequence that the bacterial virus is looking for doesn't actually naturally exist in the mammalian genome at all. We have to put it in. What are some of the described benefits of gene therapy uh, that you've seen in the literature, say, with a myostatin <coughs> inhibitor? Um, what actual physical benefits, um, if any, uh, muscle density, uh, body fat reduction? What, what have you seen in the literature that you show, see shows promise? So, of course, overwhelmingly, the literature on all of these things is not from clinical trials. It's from lab research in mice. And there, you don't really do gene therapy, per se. What you do is genetic modification of mice in their germline. So you modify the ancestors of the mice that you're actually going to study, and they're born with all their cells having the genetic modification. You don't have this problem of, uh, of penetrance that I was describing a moment ago. Um, uh, yes, there are some very interesting results. Certainly there are a number of genetically modified mouse strains now that have considerably extended longevity um, relative to normal mice. I don't want to read too much into that because, in general, that extended longevity arises from the fact that the genetic modification is a kind of mimic, a kind of emulation of calorie restriction, which has been known since the 1930s to extend the lifespan of rodents, but it's now very well, clear, very clear that it does not extend, or at least hardly at all, the lifespan of primates, including humans. Hmm. So we need something better than that. Now, you mentioned myostatin inhibitors. Mm -hmm. Also, people are interested in um, stimulating telomerase, despite the fact that it may have an, a, a cancer risk problem. Um, and these things may also have the capacity to extend longevity quite a bit. I think that it's possible that those approaches would work as well in humans as they do in mice, in contrast to the calorie restriction mimics that I mentioned a moment ago. But the, uh, the jury is very much still out there. We absolutely don't know how much the effect is going to be. Is it possible that some people, knowing the writing on the wall, they're age 60, 70, 80, and they know they have uh, a limited number of years, uh, if they were to avail themselves of a protocol that uses uh, uh, 10 injections in one day, uh, some kind of a gene therapy intervention that, that's uh, combating human frailty, uh, sarcopenia, loss of muscle density, um, do you believe there's promise that uh, these individuals might get a beneficial outcome? I certainly think there's promise that older individuals can get a beneficial outcome from therapies, whether gene therapies or others, that reverse aspects of aging such as sarcopenia and immunosenescence and so on. However, what I'm always focusing on here is that we do not know what the magnitude of the benefit would be, even if, there, even if there is a benefit and even if there are no side effects or no significant side effects. At this point, we have to remember all the time that this is early stage, highly experimental research. 
for our audience, um, are there some other things that uh, you wanted to address that um, you're just wanting to get out there? It's maybe still experimental, but shows promise as well. Well, I think I've pretty much covered most of the things that we're doing in the lab. I think the real thing that I would prefer to emphasize in closing, really, is simply that we are going too slowly. I would say that we could probably go three times faster if we just had one more digit on the end of our budget. And even then, we'd only be talking about a pitiful small budget. We'd be talking about $50 million a year. That is a tiny, tiny fraction of what the NIH spends on medical research. But the problem is that the medical research that the NIH does and that almost everybody else does is not the right research. It's misguided in trying to cure the diseases of old age rather than to prevent them by eliminating the damage that causes them. And if we can change that, and even in a, little, even in a small way, by increasing the budget of small organizations like Sense Research Foundation, then we will greatly accelerate progress and we will save untold numbers of lives. Well stated. Audrey DeGray, uh, Aubrey DeGray, that is. Your, your work is much needed. It's uh, a challenge to the whole world that uh, we have an aging population. Is it possible that some of the supercomputer work that's being done um, in identifying <coughs> ideal agent and or drug therapies might also contribute to the furthering discoveries that you're trying to put forth? We're definitely going to see uh, some contributions from high-throughput high computing and high-throughput hardware, for that matter. Essentially, we're going to be seeing the same kind of thing that we already, we've already seen as a result of the Human Genome Project. People said some stupid things about the benefits of the human genome when it was being sequenced first, but ultimately everyone knew and everyone knows now that the real benefit is that having that sequence in hand accelerates all manner of different types of medical research. And it's going to be exactly the same with more sophisticated approaches to using um, high-powered computers and new algorithms and, indeed, not just drug design but also genetic analysis to figure out things more quickly than we otherwise could. Uh, lastly, are there other chronic uh, diseases, neurological diseases, certain things that you feel um, will, um, we will find some answers or at least some improved uh, therapy interventions? Oh, I'm sure that the crusade to develop the um, therapies we're talking about against the diseases of old age will also have side benefits. They will help us to develop better treatments for earlier onset diseases that may hit people in childhood or in early adulthood, including neurological ones. Uh, tell me your website and how can they contribute to the development of uh, helping to solve this aging problem. Thank you. Our website is sense.org, S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, S for sugar, no E at the end, just sense, just S-E-N-S. -E and yeah, there's a nice friendly donate button on it. And if you want to give us more than that, you can always write to us and we'll tell you how. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Nick Delgado here. Please give us a review on iTunes and we'll be happy out of the group of reviews to choose a lucky winner of one of our award-winning products. It could be Estroblock, Adrenal DMG, Stem Cell Strong, or even Power and Speed. We'll ship you a bottle at no cost. You'll enjoy it just from basically giving us a review on iTunes. Also, visit DelgadoProtocol.com. That's DelgadoProtocol.com and take our free hormonal quiz. Looking forward to assisting you to be your absolute best.